Are you glad this morning that uh, he thought of you? I'm reminded every time we sing that song, it takes me back to the Garden of Gethsemane, and I see Jesus praying to the Father, and he says, if there's any other way, if there's any plan B, let this cut pass for me. But then he said the, the words that I am so thankful for, not my will but yours be done. And it was God's will that he go to that cross and die for us. I'm so thankful that his obedience uh, was perfect, just like he is. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Lord willing, we're going to wrap up today talking about an even better way. Last week we talked about the economy of love and the explanation of love. And I have three more things that I want to kind of flesh out through this passage, through this chapter. I want us to remember, though, that, that maybe some of you weren't here last week. Chapter 12 is, is a very famous chapter. We look at it a lot because it talks about spiritual gifts. All the different spiritual gifts that are available and the ways God has uh, you know, gifted us through his Holy Spirit to use these different gifts for his kingdom. And then he goes on to talk about the, the fact that if you use these gifts rightly, they will bring about unity in the body of Christ. And that's what we really want to see. But then it closes with this kind of an odd transition if you're just looking at the from an earthly standpoint, if you're just looking at the transition, you think this is kind of a, a strange segue. In verse 31 in chapter 12, he says this, But desire the greater gifts, and I will show you an even better way. And we would look at that and go, what could be better than all these great gifts, tongues and wisdom and discernment and healing and prophecy and all those things? And he's going, yeah, but there's something better. And that's what we're going to talk about today. I want to remind you, so that we're clear, because we're going to talk about this word a lot, that there are four Greek words used for the word love. We, we have a very rudimentary language, English. And so I can say that I love peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. I love my wife. I love my dog. I love my kids. I love the Lord. I love to fish. And all those are the same word, but in the Greek, it wouldn't be that way. They would parse out those words. You would have eros, which is the erotic or romantic love. You would have philos, which is brotherly love or friendly love. You have stergo, which is familial love, like a parent to a child. And then finally, you have agape, which is the noun, and agapao, which is the verb form of this word that we're going to talk about today, which means sacrificial love, Christ-like love. Uh, 1 John 4, 8 uses that word. The one who does not love, agape, does not know God because God is love. And then 1 John 3, 16, this is how we have come to know love, agape, sacrificial love. He laid down his life for us. Now, before we read, I want to get us caught up on the first two points. The economy of love, verses 1 through 3. He talks about how our value system doesn't always line up with God's. And factually speaking here, he says, linguistics are meaningless without love. Now, we would think it would be impressive to know all these languages and speak in spiritual languages and angelic languages, the, all the different languages on the earth. And he says, without, those, uh, without love driving those, they are useless. Tony Evans says it this way, if love is absent, spiritual gifts do not edify. Number two, the explanation of love, verses 4 through 8a. He talks about what love and what, what love is and what love is not and what love does. What love is, it's patient and kind. I need to work on those. What love is not, thank you for not amening that, by the way. What love is not, it's not jealous, boastful, arrogant, rude, selfish, it's not on edge, it doesn't carry a grudge, and it doesn't celebrate wrongs. What does love do? This is important to know. It rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, and here's the kicker, love never 
ends. Now, when we get to the end of the passage today, end of the chapter, we're going to really kind of drive that point home. Love doesn't end. It doesn't quit. Remember this. Love is not an emotion. It is a decision. Young people, if you, if you uh, fancy a young lady or fancy a young man, you kind of have your eyes set on them. You think, hey, I want to try to build a relationship there. If you don't love them with a choice to be sacrificial, go away. Go far away. You know, like the old don't go away mad, just go away. If you don't have that kind of sacrificial love for that person, if you have Eros love, I promise you that's going to go away. It's going gonna, it's gonna to fail. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be fleeting. You better have that agape love, that sacrificial love, that love that says, this is what love means. When we stand before a congregation, I just did one a couple weeks ago. When we stand before a congregation and unite a couple in marriage, here's what we're saying. These two people are making a commitment. That's a strange word in our society. We've kind of lost that. I, I just not feeling it, and you just leave. I don't like this, and I just leave. I don't feel that way anymore. But listen, it, the problem is you were worried about your feelings. You don't need to worry about your feelings. You need to worry about your commitment. When we bind two couple, a couple together, a man and a woman wrapped around God, that is a commitment to love. That is making a commitment to say, even if she gets ugly, and even if he gets fat, and even if there's no money, and even if there's not health, no matter what happens, we have made a choice to commit ourselves to love each other sacrificially. I promise you, sacrificial love will fix 99.9999999% of problems in marriages today. So let's read the rest of this chapter. If you would stand with me. We're going to pick up in verse 8. I've already kind of covered the first part of verse 8, but I think we need to get a running start. So we're going to use these three words. <laughs> Isn't it good to be able to hold in your hand the inerrant, inspired, infallible, all-sufficient word of the Creator God of the universe? 1 Corinthians 13, verse 8, Paul writes, Love never ends. But as for prophecies, they will come to an end. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will come to an end. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, watch that transition, but when the perfect comes, the partial will come to an end. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I put aside childish things. For now we only see a reflection as in a mirror. But then, face to face, now in part, but then, I love this church, I will know fully as I am fully known. Now these three remain. You can think of this as the Mount Rushmore of emotions and, and feelings and all the different things that make us who we are. Faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Let's pray. Father God, speak to us today. Move me out of the way. Speak, Father, through your word, through your spirit, for our good, for our edification, and for the glory of King Jesus in whose name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So the third point I want to talk about, the third thing I want to look at today is the eternality of love. You can think about that as the eternal nature uh, the eternality of love. Look at the second part of verse 8. 
It says prophecies will end, tongues will cease, knowledge will end. Those three words are very valuable in the context of what we had just talked about in chapter 12. The word prophecy there is prophetia, and it means prediction, scriptural or otherwise. Part of that is what is going on here today from this pulpit. The second thing he says that that's going to end is tongues or glossa. And this is language, speech, or utterances. These are important things, but these are things that are going to end. And then this word knowledge, which is gnosis in the Greek. And this is a word we're going to see two other words following that use this word as their root. Okay? So just hold on to this one. Pay attention to that. Gnosis. And it means the content of what is known. Now listen, that's important. The content of what is known. Not just facts, not just stuff, not just information, but the entirety of it. Not, not just knowing a bunch of goofy lines from movies. Not just remembering lyrics to songs. Not just remembering ridiculous statistics of your favorite football team. And by the way, nobody cares. Let's put that out there. If you know how many yards Emmett Smith rushed for when he broke the record of the most... Nobody cares. You need to let that go. You've got more important things to, to use those little few. Some of y'all are getting to be old like I am, and those little brain cells, have got bit, they got stuff they need to do. They can't be multitasking. So sometimes you ask me something, I'm like, man, I used to know that, but I had to let that go because i got more important things to try to remember. And it's saying that those things are going to go away. Why? Because these are things that we hold high now, but we only know part of what's going on. We can only see a small image of the picture. Verse 9. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. The word know there, here's the first of those two words. Know there is gnosko. And it means to recognize or to understand. And then the word prophesy there is prophetuo. Prophetuo. And it's to speak under inspiration or to exercise the prophetic office. When I stand before you today, and I've said this before, that's what I'm doing. I'm looking at the word of God through the Spirit of God and the power of God to tell you, thus saith the Lord. This is what God is saying through his word. I am prophesying from the word of God to tell you what's going on and what to expect, what's going to come next. He says here that we, we only know in part and we only prophesy in part. See, the problem that we have, I believe, in, in some ways is that we can't let go of that in part. See, we like to think that we are the end-all, be-all, know-it-all. We're on top of everything. There's nothing that gets by us. We're advanced. This is the 21st century. I mean, my goodness, it's 2022. You remember how dumb you sounded back when you said it's 1990? But when you said that, you thought you were sharp. Well, can't, you can't think like that anymore. I mean, my goodness, it's 1990. That's 32 years ago. I'm 112. That's what it feels like when I say that. But, but we think we know things, and then five years... Listen, imagine what we will know in five years. Imagine all the things that are going to come to light in five years. We're, we're, we've got bigger telescopes and better telescopes looking deeper into space. And by the way, can I just say something real quick? The deeper we look into space, the more I see the handprints of God. The more things we see in this universe, the more I believe that there is a great creator God who is an artist above all artists, and he made and designed everything to work as it does. But see, we, we don't like to think that we don't know everything. We like to think that we're on top of the world. By the way, that's what they thought in 1500. That's what, that's what Columbus thought in 1492. 
See, we, we don't know because we can't know because we can only see in part and we can only prophesy in part. No matter how good a job I do telling you what the Word says, I can only tell you part because I'm not there. I haven't been to the other side. I haven't seen all the things that are going to happen. And then he says this, this transitional word, but, in verse 10, when the perfect comes. Now, I want to try to talk to you a little bit about perfect real quick before we move on. That word in the Greek is teleos, and it means spiritually complete or mature. Now, when the perfect comes, the partial will stop. Why? Because we don't need partial. I don't need partial stuff when I have perfect stuff. When the perfect arrives, we'll let go of the partial. By the way, most of the things that you are really killing yourself to stack up right now, look at me, partial. That's all it is. You are killing yourself to stack up a bunch of partial stuff. You better be focused on the perfect. You better be laying up treasures in heaven waiting on the perfect to come so that you will understand how useless some of the partial stuff really was. But I want to draw your attention to Hebrews chapter 9. And this is an interesting thing to me. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11. This is another place where the Bible, the New Testament, uses this same word, teleos. It says, but Christ has appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come. Now, he is a high priest. He's the eternal high priest, the great high priest in the order of Melchizedek, we will read. But he is the high priest of the things that have already come. But watch what it says. In the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands that is not of this creation. The greater and more teleos tabernacle. Do you see what he's doing? Paul is saying here in 1 Corinthians 13 that when the perfect comes, and then the writer of Hebrews says that Jesus is the high priest in the greater and more perfect tabernacle. In other words, he is the perfect that will come. He, the, the, the new creation, the new heaven, the new earth, the new Jerusalem, that's the perfect that's going to come, and it's going to mean that all of the partial stuff can be let go. The partial stuff is meros. It means to some degree or to some extent. You don't want to some degree when you can have the fullness of the perfect. What Jesus has for us is better than what we are planning for ourselves. Number four, the evolution of love. Look at verses 11 and 12. I, I wanna, I'm going to dispel some, some myths here. I, I know probably going to hurt some people's feelings. If you have a plant in your home right now that is beautiful and green and it's got a thick stem and just looks awesome and you haven't watered it for 13 years, it's plastic. And some of y'all have been lying to company. You know who you are. Tell the truth. Stay in the church. Some of y'all have been going in there before company comes and getting you a wet rag and wiping the dust off your plastic plants. And when people come in and say, man, that plant's awesome. Well, you know, I'm a little bit of a gardener. That plastic plant ain't growing. You know why? It's dead. If you have a live plant and you don't water it for 13 years, it will be dead. If it's not growing, it is dying. How's your faith? How's your walk with Christ? You see, the world tells us anything dead ought to be buried, but aren't you glad that Jesus doesn't operate according to the world's systems? 
He was dead. Stayed in a borrowed tomb three days and got up. Can I just tell you today that if your love is dead, if your sacrificial love is dead, if your faith feels like it is either dying or dead, he can resurrect it today if you'll let him, if you'll ask him. We can never be complacent when it comes to our spiritual development. We cannot continue on as children. When we see someone that looks or acts much younger than they are, it's indicative of a problem. There's some kind of a a restriction to their natural growth and maturity. There's even a genetic disorder called Kalman syndrome that causes a person to look much younger than they are because their hormones don't develop properly. So they may be 45 and they look like they're 15. They have childlike features. It's because there's something wrong with their development. So why is it that we allow Christians to look much younger than they are and we don't act like there's something wrong with them? The word child there in the Greek is napios, and it means a simple-minded person or an immature Christian. You see, Paul says, when I was a child, I did what children do. I spoke, I thought, I reasoned like a child. But we can't stay children forever. We have to mature. We have to grow. We have to develop. You came to faith in Christ. Awesome. Now what? Well, I walked the aisle and shook the preacher's hand. I got baptized. Good for you. Now what? What have you done with that since? I want to give you some visuals. I want you to picture this. Imagine there's a CEO sitting at a conference table with a Fortune 500 company, and he has asked his board to go with him in some venture that he wants the company to do. He thinks it's important, and he's dead set, man. He's got all of his paperwork out, and he's run all the numbers, and he says, this is what I want us to do, and the board votes, and they vote no, and he throws a fit. Chris, I know you have never seen one of these in the Set household. But, I mean, he kicks and cries and screams and throws stuff and turns his water over and tumps over all of his facts and sits in the floor and pounds the floor and cries. I mean, like a baby. How long is that CEO going to be in that job? Let, let, let me do, let's drive it a little closer to home. Imagine a quarterback of an NFL team, and in the Super Bowl, he is having a bad game, worst game of his life. He's overthrowing receivers. He's missing blitzes. He, he's fumbling the ball, and the coach decides he's going to make a change. And when the sub runs in from the sideline, the, the starting quarterback sees him, and he just sits in the middle of the field, holds the ball, and starts bawling and screaming, I'm not coming out of the game. That's not fair. I practice hard, and I want to win the Super Bowl. You would be like, some of y'all, if it was your college team, you would, you would openly weep. Let's be honest. <gasps> y'all, your prayer life might improve. Y'all might start praying for that quarterback more than y'all prayed for your pastor. But you wouldn't tolerate it, would you? Well, I, I found a video this week, and it's funny how God does things. I had this, this sermon's been written for a hot minute, but this came up this week, and I had to ask Josh. I said, hey, can, is there any way we can show this? So, so Bailey, let's, let's play that. I want you to watch this for a second. Hey, now. All right, back it up. Back it up and pause it when it first starts. Whoa, right there. All right, I'm not picking on this guy. He's a great pitcher. I've seen him pitch. He's got filthy stuff. He had a bad game. Maybe the umpire was squeezing him a little bit. Maybe the catcher, you know, wasn't, wasn't, they weren't g and hauling. Maybe he just didn't have it that day. Maybe he had a blister. Whatever the reason, he was getting raped, and he was not happy about it. So he comes over to the dugout this millionaire making multi-millions of dollars a year, and what does he do? He pitches a fit. I saw another guy yesterday destroy a cooler full of uh, sunflower seeds 
And I almost openly wept. Don't hurt the seeds. He kicks a bat and it hits one of his teammates in the kneecap. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. If that was me and Cuz had hit me in the kneecap with a bat, we're going to have to go back here in the back of the dugout. What's happening? He's throwing a fit. He's throwing a tantrum. Why? Because things didn't go his way. Because he didn't operate to the level that he thought he should have. Whatever. We wouldn't tolerate that. In my day, I, I, I'm just trying to think of my co coach Helms that coached me in Little League and Summer League or Coach Kinsaw that coached me in junior high. I'm trying to picture them letting me get away with that. April's dad... I know I watched her dad coach enough. He would have, listen, there would be a knot snatched in that young man if he came in that dugout kicking a bat and hit another player. That's just not how we operate. That's not how we live. We, we don't, listen, you can have a bad game, but you can't act like a child. So, so we wouldn't tolerate that, right? Now let me ask you a question. What about somebody who says they put their faith in Christ when they were seven or eight years old and now they're in their 50s or 60s? They've never read the Bible all the way through. They don't memorize any scripture. They don't have daily quiet time with the Lord. They're not doing a serious devotion that draws them closer to Christ. They've never told anybody that Jesus is the Lord of the universe, the only pathway to heaven, the only salvation to keep you out of hell, the way, the truth, and the life. They've never led anybody to Christ. They don't give to the church. They rarely show up. Now, how would we think that person is better off than this guy? We would mock the CEO pitching a fit. We would mock the quarterback throwing a tantrum. We make fun of this guy for kicking a bat. And yet we think it's okay to say that we belong to Jesus, but we do nothing for him. There's a problem with that. When I was a child, I'm not a child anymore. I put away childish things. I start to make decisions based on what the Holy Spirit of God would have me to do. You see, verse 12 says, For we see only reflection in a mirror now, but then we're going to see face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will fully know as I am fully known. Here's, here's my, my caveat to this. No matter how advanced a society becomes or how educated the people in that society are, we can only truly see and fully comprehend the temporal for now. Why? Because we can't get over that temporal gap. We can't jump that gorge to get over to the eternal side. This is one of my frustrations we have when we have these theological arguments and fights over stuff that really doesn't matter. Election, free will, uh, you know, this, this gray area of Scripture and that gray area of Scripture. We get on Twitter and just mock each other and are hateful to each other. We get in these conferences. We're ready, ready to throw, throw, throw hands at each other over these things. You don't know. We can't know. Why? Because our minds are finite and God is infinite. When God sets all this stuff up, he does it way beyond what we can understand, way beyond what we can comprehend. That's why they call it faith. We put our faith, our trust, our belief, our confident expectation in Him. And let Him fill in the blanks. Here, here's, my, here's my point. I sign the check and I hand it to Jesus and let Him put the amount. I sign the contract and let Jesus fill in the stipulations. We can't know everything. That word reflection there is ahinigma. 
and it means a poor reflection or an indistinct image, an obscure saying. It's where we get the word enigma, which means a mysterious or puzzling person or thing, a riddle. You see, this, this mirror that he says, we see things uh, uh, indistinctly or, or unclearly. It's because the mirrors of that day were not glass like they are now. They were polished and pounded metal. So they would take a malleable metal, and they would pound it and beat it and push it and polish it and, and try to get it as nice as they could. But the best old mirror like that, you're going to have a hard time shaving or putting on your makeup using it compared to the mirrors we have of our day. So he's saying... You look into this mirror and you think you're seeing everything clearly, but you're only seeing indistinctly. I walked in the bathroom the other morning. April was, was uh, putting on her makeup or brushing her teeth, and I walked in and she said, Baby, you look sharp. And I said, Honey, I appreciate that, but you can't say stuff like that to me with that mirror right there in front of us. It just makes it sound disingenuous. You know, like, you tell me I look sharp, and I look at the mirror and say, Ooh, <laughs> not really. See, the mirrors we have now show us a clear picture, but back then they didn't show that clear picture. And that's why he's saying this. We cannot fully see when we're looking at something indistinctly. It's an enigma. And this, here's the, 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 the second word, building off of gnos, uh, gnosis. Know fully as I am fully known. Epigenosko is the Greek word. It means to be f fully acquainted with. Now, let me give you an example of where that is. Uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul talks about food given to idols. There was a big problem going on in the Corinthian church where some people were eating food that had been sacrificed or used uh, in idol worship. And that's forbidden for the Old Testament law, but they didn't. some of them didn't know, and some of them just said, hey, God said don't call unclean what I've called clean. I'm going to eat it. And he was saying, hey, let's, let's clean this up. This is causing dissension in the church. And so here he starts talking about it. And he says, now, about food sacrificed to idols, in verse 1, he said, we know that we all have knowledge. And watch this sentence. Knowledge, epigenosko, puffs up, but love, agape, builds up. See, that, that's where we need to land. We need to be trying to build up and not puff up. Our problem is it's a whole lot more fun to be puffed up than it is to be built up. Being built up takes work. It takes pain. There's struggle. There's growth. Puffed up, you just need a little hot air. And we all got plenty of that in the world we live in. Finally, number five, let's look at the last verse, verse 13. The evaluation of love. The evaluation of love. He says these three remain, faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. The word remain there means to continue to exist, meno. And then he has these three great words, these three pillars almost. Faith is the word pistis. It means a state of certainty with regard to belief. The word hope is elpis, and it means a confident expectation. And then love, we've already talked about. It's the agape love, the sacrificial love. He says, when everything is said and done, when it's all over, three things are going to endure. Three things are going to make it. Faith, hope, and love. Now, when I first started reading this passage, this was one of the craziest things I'd read in Scripture. I'm like, hope is better than love. Faith is much better than love. I think he has them in the right order as far as importance when he says them. Faith is most important. You've got to put your faith in Christ. Hope is what we get when we put our faith in Christ because he is our confident expectation. Why is love the most valuable? Why does he say love is the greatest? Here's why. When we get to the other side, whenever that happens and however that looks, when we 
those of us who have put our faith in Christ, when we reach eternity, we won't need faith because our faith will have been made sight. We won't need hope because he will have proven our confident expectation was well placed. And by the way, he will exceed every hope that we have in him. What will remain and what will be perfect at that point is love. We will finally be able to love fully because our flesh will finally be out of the way. Anybody else like me, do you, do you have those moments where you're just like, I hate the way my mind works. I hate the way that my brain works. Anybody else? And what I'm talking about is, and some of you would say my brain doesn't work, and that's fair. It works. It just, it's kind of like that wire, Jace. It's not quite, isn't, the neutral ain't quite hitting, and it, it kind of pull, it's, got a little, it's on and off. Here's what I'm talking about. There are times when I'm trying to pray or read my Bible or study or just like just sit and not think about anything, and these bad thoughts come in. You know, I have seen something. I'm like, oh, I didn't need to see that. And it'll, it's like, hey, remember this? Now, I can't remember where I left my keys. I can't remember why I went in the kitchen. I can't remember to take my medicine. But these things that I don't want to remember, it seems like they just keep popping to my mind. See, when we get on the other side, that stuff is going to be gone. All that stuff that keeps me from being like Jesus is going to be gone. All those things that keep me from being able to truly love sacrificially and show the love of Christ will be gone. Now, between now and then, I can't. it's not a cop-out to say, well, I'm just going to know and be fully known back over there, but over here, you just got to put up with me being a jerk. That's not true. I have to daily bring myself to the altar, Romans 12, 1 and 2. I have to present my body as living sacrifice, holding acceptable, pleasing unto God, which is my reasonable act of worship. Why? Because he needs to burn me up. He needs to burn off all of me so that people can see the love of Christ instead of seeing my opinions or my standards or my perspective. They need to see Jesus. When we get to the other side, we won't need faith. We won't need hope. And we will really, truly be able to experience what sacrificial love really is once we get home. We have the economy of love, the explanation of love, the eternality of love, the evolution of love, and the evaluation of love. I want to remind you of the, the quote that Austin gave me. The world tells us to benefit ourselves even if it's to the detriment of others. Love tells us to benefit others even if it's to the detriment of ourselves. And I want to try to, as we close this, I want to try to put a bow on it this way. If you have your Bibles, will you turn to Galatians chapter 5? Galatians chapter 5. Y'all are like, Brother Kevin, this is the part where we close our Bibles and zip them up. I know, I heard them. <laughs> Psych, get them back out. Galatians chapter 5. I want you to hear me. I want to be clear. It is admirable to seek the spiritual gifts. That is an admirable aim to say, Lord, I want to have spiritual gifts so that I can use them for your glory. But not above the fruits of the Spirit. Y'all know we've said this time and time again. No root means no fruit. And no fruit means no root. If you are attached to the vine, Jesus I'm the vine, you are the branches, he tells us in John. If you are attached to the vine, you will produce fruit. I want you to hear me this morning. I'm not trying to scare you. I'm trying to help you. If there is no fruit in your life, no fruits of the Holy Spirit, there's no fruit in your life, you better check your attachment to the vine. 
want you to read with me. Look at verse 22, Galatians 5. When I stop, y'all be ready to say the word. But the fruit of the Spirit is, hey, look at there. How about that? Peyton, you think maybe there's some kind of a symbolism there that, that he tells us that the greatest of these is love in chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians. After telling us at the end of chapter 12, I'm going to show you an even better way, he then goes on to say that the even better way is love and the greatest thing you can have in your life is sacrificial love. And then when he lists out the fruit of the Spirit, what is the very first fruit that he says we should show? Love. Sacrificial, Christ-like love. How's your fruit? How's your connection to the vine? Are you being productive in your life as a Christ follower? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The law is not against such things. Those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Sounds like he's going back to 1 Corinthians 13. He's telling us all the things that love isn't and all the things that love is and what love should do. I want to tell you this, and I'm just being honest. I, I am humbled. Anytime somebody, I ran into some people, went to a conference last Tuesday, ran into some people I knew, and they say, how's things going at Westmobile? And I don't even want to tell them. <laughs> because they're going so good, I can't believe it. That's the truth. And again, I got a mirror. I ride the truck by myself a lot. I, I put up with me a lot. I was telling a, a friend of mine at, at the conference, he was telling me some stuff at his church, and I was rejoicing in that, and I was telling him some stuff from here, and I looked at him, and I said, now, here's the thing about telling this to you. You know me well enough to know you. it ain't me. God has been doing some amazing things here at Westmobile, amazing things, a lot of things that you don't even, you're not even aware of. Yeah, we've got good attendance, and giving is up, and cut the rope is an amazing blessing, and with God's grace, we're going to get this debt paid, and we're going to see what else God has for us to do, but I want you to hear me this morning. If we pay off the debt, if we build another building, if we pack the place out, we have to go to four services. Listen to me. If we don't have love, it's nothing. It's worthless. we're not showing people the love of Christ, if we're not exemplifying the life of Christ in everything that we do, how we interact with one another, how we treat each other, how we talk about each other, how we tell other people about Jesus, how we welcome other people when they come to visit us, how we go out and tell other people that aren't even going to come to visit us, how much Jesus has done for us and that he's the only way to heaven. If we don't have love, all the attendance, all the giving, all the stuff like that is just a clanging gong or a crashing cymbal. It's worthless. It's useless. Would you stand? As always, y'all know this, I say it almost every week, our invitation time is a time if you need to come to faith in Christ, you've never done that, you want to walk down here and tell this church that today is the day you've committed to follow Jesus. 
then this is the time to do that. If you've been a follower of Christ and you've realized over the last week or even today during the message that you are backslidden, you're not living for Jesus, you're living for yourself, and you want to come today to rededicate your life to say, I am committed to follow Jesus. I want to, I want to make a closer walk with Jesus my aim. And you can do that today. If you need to join our church, move a letter, all that stuff is fine. That's what the invitation time is for every week, for you to respond to whatever the Holy Spirit has prompted you to do. But intentionally this week, much like last week, I want to ask you these two questions. What kind of life are you living and why are you living it? Because if you're doing stuff that you claim is for Jesus, but it's not driven by love, it's misdirected. It's misplaced. If you want to show people how much you know, show them Jesus, you got to do it through sacrificial love. It's like the old cliche, nobody cares how much you know until they know how much you care. You know why? Because sacrificial love drives everything we do. And when it does, people see Jesus in us because that's what drove him. A love for the Father to be obedient to what God had called him and sent him here to do. And a love for you and me that he would go to the cross in our place. I'm going to pray in just a minute. And while I pray, here's what I want you to do. I want you to ask God to search you. Search me, oh God. See if there's any wicked way within me. Create in me a clean heart, O oh God. Ask him to take out any kind of a stony heart and put in a flesh heart that can be malleable and moved and, and, and shaped into what God wants you to be. If you're struggling to have sacrificial love, if you're struggling to put others before you, would you repent of that today and just ask God to help you to be more like Jesus? I'm going to pray. When I say amen, we're up here if you need to come pray, if you need to come make a decision, a profession of faith. But most of all, I want you to spend just a little bit asking God to search you and fix anything in you that does not represent the, the sacrificial love of Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for this word. God, I thank you that it has corrected me. I thank you that it is it's working on me. And God, I need to be able to, 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 to walk out that sacrificial love better. I want to represent Jesus. Lord, I don't want people to see me. I want people to see Jesus. So God, if there's anybody else here today that's in that same boat, it's just not loving the way they should, not having that sacrificial love. Lord, maybe there's a marriage that's struggling because there's no sacrificial love. Maybe there's a relationship that's struggling because there's no sacrificial love. God, I pray that today you would mend those hearts you would call us to sacrificial love. Lord, if it's going to happen, it's going to be because you do it through your power. And I pray you would today in Jesus' name. Amen.